So to clarify and wipe the boards clean here, this was a rumination, or a view, but a rumination on Tor in general, combat and gameplay-wise, specifically the Imperial side, and specifically the Sith Warrior side. We did all the planetary primaries, and all the instances, and Sith Warrior itself, but once the Sith Warrior storyline terminated at the end of Corellia, that's when we chopped it off. So anything after that is just nope. Okay? Just want to make that clear because we had a lot of questions about that during the run, and I wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page. Now, I like to... I, I want to open here with the, the most obvious and overt thing I could say about the game. I enjoy it with cheats. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit, but if you have the availability to play this game, you know, and, and you're going to subscribe to it, you, you really do want to subscribe to it, then go for it. There's a decent enough amount of stuff to enjoy here, and the game has gotten substantially better over the years. I played this game in beta, I played this game at launch, I played this game five years ago, and today. This is the mid-2020 for anybody watching this on a VOD. And this game is way better than it used to be. And if you're looking at the review and thinking, but you gave it a net, net, net negative 10 to gameplay, yes, the game has gotten much better. And that's my point. Playing with cheats. Now you're probably thinking, my god, you cheated in an MMO. I did. I had friends with me. Now you could argue whether that qualifies as cheating or not. I think it fulfills the same general purpose because having the group with me, and I want to give shoutouts, by the way, here in the rumination to Shadow Machine, Darth Tyron, Von Falkenstein, Vigilant, and Cord, all of whom were helpful and were joining me and were awesome. Thank you, all of you, for your assistance during the run. But all of them helped me, and as a consequence, I didn't have to deal with the sloggy boringness of the combat as much as I would if I was playing the solo or with one other person. So I was effectively playing with cheats. Which leads me to my next thing. If you're going to play this game, play with a friend. One, two, or three friends, whatever your preference is. Uh, companions can fill in the gaps from two up to four. But you want to play with a friend. It's much better. Plus, if you play a different class than them, you get to see two stories for the price of one. For the most part, there's like two or three percent of the cutscenes won't share. This game is actually very co-op friendly, always has been, and it's very story-centric, which is another good thing about it. So, you know, that's, that's all nice, and uh, is the kind of thing that helps elevate it in my mind, personally. You'll notice, if you're looking at the review, that it ended with quite a few positives to story. And that is admittedly for Tor as a whole, not just Sith Warrior, although some of the stories are much worse, and some of the planetary primaries kind of suck. But the fact is, there's still a lot to enjoy here. But I don't, I don't want to talk about the story yet. Let's really jump into the combat and the gameplay, because I want to clarify a few things. I know there's going to be some people who say, Lord, the combat isn't that bad. And you're absolutely right, it's not. But there's nothing about the combat that I would consider a positive. Nothing that actually elevated it to being good, in my mind. Nothing interesting, nothing engaging, nothing fresh, nothing fun. It is serviceable. And that's fine, until you do it for five days solid. And then it gets a little bit, eh. Now you're probably thinking, oh, well, what if you play it over time? Trust me, it's the same thing. Because after a while, it just gets old. It's not quite Dragon Age 2 Syndrome, which is a little bit different of a thing, but it definitely reminds me of the same, you know, general arc. In fact, if anything, the combat reminds me a lot of KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2's combat. Now, the combat in those games were mostly serviceable, but there were a few things that helped elevate them, uh, not the least of which the build variety, especially in KOTOR 2. There's a lot of different ways to play that. 
Now that is completely absent in Tor. You have what amounts to no customization when it comes to how your spec plays. You pick your spec at character creation, you're good to go. <laughs> you can swap between being tank or DPS or tank healer or DPS, depending on your class. But even then, you're still locked within a specific type of spec that you select when you make your character. Now, the reason I'm willing to give this a bit of a pass, although I still don't think this is good, it is serviceable, is the fact that this effectively fulfills the same slot that the builds did back in KOTOR 2. Do you want to pay a, play a ranged AoE gunner? Well, there you go. You've got, uh, Power Tech, I think. Actually, no, it's not Power Tech. It's one of the, I don't remember all the names, please forgive me, but you get, you have the Bounty Hunter and the Trooper can play that. Do you want to play something a little bit more sneaky with some big, really snooky hits? Well, that's the Agent and the Smuggler. Do you want to play someone who could stay back, heal, buff, and do some dot damage? Well, that, then you've got the Sage, or excuse me, the Consular or the Inquisitor. Do you want to be a full tilt, you know, dual wield, well, dual saber wielding tank? and just buzzsaw your way through things. Well, that's what the Inquisitor and Consular are for. Do you want to play a dual-wielding warrior that just buzzsaws? And you get the idea. I'm not going to go down the whole list. I should shut up now. But the point is, there are options. It's just, rather than having an option after you pick a class, it's when you pick your class. That's part of why I say I don't think that's good. Because if I want to enjoy playing the game... There's about two different specs, excuse me, that's, that's not true, three specs I can play that I will find enjoyment in. Everything else I just kind of put up with because I, you know, I want to go through the game for the story. So if I want to enjoy the Agent storyline, for example, which by memory, haven't reviewed it, I consider to be one of the best storylines in the game, then I have to endure playing Agent, which I don't want to play because I don't enjoy the playstyle. Now that's just kind of a give and take thing. You know, but it is something worthy of note. The game looks nice. You know, it's it certainly managed to uh, look decent for its age, in my opinion. I know that's a matter of aesthetics, and whether you agree or not is going to depend on your opinion. But I think it still looks decent to this day. I never had any real problem with it. They certainly do the Bioware animations one of the better examples of that. There's a lot of default animations, which is what Bioware does in general. But I think for the most part, the animations work for me. They managed to segue smoothly in and out of each other. And with only a couple of exceptions, they never got hilarious. Probably the only animation that ever got bothersome for me was when someone... It's the animation where someone has a gun out. And they kind of have it right up in front of them. And they, they walk right up to you like this. Like, Ugh. Bounty Hunter does that a lot. And uh, a lot of enemy, you know, blaster-wielding enemies do that a lot. And it's silly every time I see it. It's like, okay, yeah, uh-huh. And, of course, there's the you know, igniting the lightsaber animation that they do. But for the most part, it worked. It worked. It was good, and I enjoyed myself, uh, relatively speaking. I also have to mention that the game... Let me take a step back here for a second. So I've, I've been doing a lot of bashing of the combat, and I stand by that. Like I said, there's just nothing engaging about it, and as you play it, the more you play it, the worse it gets, right? But I do also have to mention... The gameplay, I, I'm trying to be very specific here because combat and gameplay are different things. I mean, obviously combat is an aspect of gameplay, but I think too many people mean combat when they say gameplay. The gameplay of this game is not terrible, but also not very good. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. 
the combat, it, it drags it down. I'm not going to try and dismiss that. But when I say gameplay, well, what is gameplay for a game like this? Well, a gameplay for a game like this is encounter design, enemy design, level layout and variety, quest functionality and layout, interface, you know, the way, the way the game looks, the way the game actually physically plays, and of course, dialogue options, which I have argued for years and will continue to argue is a function more of gameplay than it is of story, since that is how you, the player, are playing the game, right? Especially in a Bioware game, where you deciding your dialogue is kind of a significant part of a Bioware formula. On most of these fronts, it's average. Uh, the level design is not great, but I've seen worse. The encounter design is not fantastic. It only really spikes into bad several times. I will say the enemy design is not good. The first time I actually saw enemies that were actually fun to fight was in the Directive 7 instance. Uh, Flashpoint, excuse me which was the last Flashpoint we did for this particular run. That's... <laughs> it's not the nicest thing I could say about it, because most of the encounters are, there's an enemy, they're either shooting you, or they have a lightsaber, and they have stats. That That's, that's most of the encounters in the entire game. There's not a lot of variety to it. And I know you could say that about several MMOs, but that's not a defense, not really. There are a few fights which sway into the idea of encounter design, bit by bit, you know, as there's occasional thing. But for the most part, it's just, okay. I think part of the problem here is most of the enemies, uh, by memory, I don't know if this is true anymore, are actually designed to be one of the core classes. So they have access to the same stats and abilities that the classes do. This is most obvious when you do the actual class storyline. Most of the major enemies you fight as the Sith Warrior, like Drog or Barris himself, have Sith Warrior abilities, so that lines up and makes sense. Now, for all that negativity, though, I gotta say, the interface works a lot better than I thought it would. It's nothing fancy, but the amount of customization options baked into the game are pretty good. There's a lot of option for, you know, remaneuvering, repositioning, rescaling, and simply disabling aspects of the interface, which is good. I also have to give praise to the dialogue part of things. Now, this does have what some people have called Tor Effect. I have since renamed Tor Syndrome. Where, for those of you not aware, Tor Syndrome is when you select something that says, I agree, and what comes out of your voice is, I agree that you're pathetic and worthless and I like to eat puppies. Om, om, om. It, it's when the dialogue on the wheel doesn't sync up with the dialogue that's actually stated. This is a fairly common Bioware problem, but is also in other games. Alpha Protocol, looking at you. Other than that issue of having Tor Syndrome, the dialogue wheel for the most part is good, especially in a group. For those of you thinking about trying this out, I have to mention, if you are going to try this out, there's a mechanic which is actually brilliant. It could be even more brilliant, but it is still brilliant. Where, like, I will roll a dice and you will roll a dice for each dialogue option we pick, and that will determine who actually picks the dialogue. There's also a built-in bit of luck protection, bad luck protection built into that. So if you win the dice roll... I get a bonus to my next roll. If you win the next dice roll, I get an even bigger bonus to my next roll. Basically, offsetting bad luck in terms of the rolls to ensure that the dialogue options swap from you to me, depending on how the dialogue options are going. In other words, if you're playing a group of four, generally speaking, all four of them will get to speak at certain points in conversations. Good system. Also, this is even better, like, let's say there's a choice to murder a puppy horribly... Or, you know, pet a kitten, right? Dark side, light side. And you're trying to, to keep, you be dark side. And your friend's trying to be light side. You can both pick each. 
Now, whatever the, the, the winner picks is what happens, but you don't get penalized for that. Like, if you pick light side and pet, want to pet the kitten, then the kitten goes... Actually, no, what happens is the puppy gets killed because your friend picked dark side. But you get light side points for having picked scritching kitten. Make sense? It's a good system. It's a very good system, and I very much like it. I also like the visuals of most of the planets. There's a couple of exceptions here, but I think most of the planets look visually distinct from each other, and good. Tatooine looks fantastic. To this day, I actually really like the visual style of Tatooine. And Hoth, which, it's hard... <laughs> I hate to point those out, because they're both, you know, abandoned, voidless desert. But I'm speaking from experience and from analysis, it's a lot harder than it sounds to make a blistering wasteland look interesting. And they manage it in both cases. Props. And I also really like the puke-soaked neon look they have going for Nar Shaddaa. I know that doesn't sound very appealing, but they, they manage the aesthetic quite well. And, I again, I like it. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, I also, I, I do have a couple of complaints. The instance design, I kind of skipped over this, but since this is an MMO, and we were reviewing the Imperial side of things, so we did all the instances up to Directive 7, and they all kind of sucked. <laughs> A couple had a decent story, you know, the original Black Talon was was actually good, and had an actual branching narrative where things will go differently depending on your choices, which is awesome and what the instances should do. It's also an interesting story in its own right. And Directive 7, like I said, had actual boss mechanics and boss design, which was fun. And, and you know, it was the first time I actually felt, oh, this is an instance. Everything else is pretty um, boring or actively bad, in my opinion. Very bare-bone fights, way too many enemies, almost no story in some cases. I challenge you right now, tell me the story of Hammerpoint. I could. <laughs> and I, I expect to see some of you guys in the comments being like, well, you see. But my point is, it's not what I would call an engaging story. In fact, the story of a lot of this, the instances is basically the same story you could bake into a random side quest in terms of depth, complexity, and interest. Which brings me to side quests. I know we're still kind of in the gameplay side of things, but the side quests in this game mostly suck, in my opinion. This is my next bit of advice to you. If you're going to pick up this game, skip the side quests. You don't need to do them. Uh, you can do the planetary primaries and the class quests, and you're good to go. I hit level 74 by the end of Corellia. Corellia is a level 50, 40 to 50, like 44 to 50 zone. Yeah, no, you, you'll be fine on experience. I'll talk about that in just a second. But you can skip the side quest safely, and I don't think you'll be missing much. There are exceptions, but the problem is, unless you know what the good ones are, I don't really have a good way to tell you what they are, so that's up to you. It's up to you. I would rather skip the 98% Drek. Just my opinion. But I mentioned the experience curve. The experience curve in this game is actually pretty good, in my opinion. And you're thinking, ah, oh, lore, you're a casual, and you're worthless, and you're terrible, and you're fat, and you're ugly, and you're stupid, and you're poor. And all of those things are true. But I do have to say, I like the idea of quick leveling being a thing. The only thing that I would think is better is if it was a toggle. Because some people do want to level slowly. I don't understand why, but I do. I know that. That's the truth. I'm not trying to make fun or, or be dismissive. I know plenty of people who prefer a slower leveling experience, so that should be a toggle. There should be a button you hit for Kong. Now, you're probably thinking, well, just unsubscribe if you want to be... No, that's not a sufficient answer. And also, being unsubscribed also cuts you off at the knees in every other way, too, so I don't think that's a good answer at all. So having a toggle for experience gain rate would be very helpful, I think. But the reason I like the experience gain being so quick is because... 
it allows you to cherry pick. It allows you to decide, well, I just want to do the class stuff. Or maybe I'm just really interested in the planetary stuff. I'm not that invested in this class. Or maybe I really want a side quest and just skip all that. Maybe I just want to go do instances, you know, flashpoints. Or maybe I want to PvP my way up. That's relatively quick. Maybe I don't care about what I do at all. I'm just trying to hit max level as quickly as possible. Having a quick leveling curve enables all of these things. And that's what I like about it. Again, the only thing I would do better is make it a toggle. The next thing I want to talk about is the light side, dark side mechanic, which has been severely simplified. You just kind of pick light side or dark side, and it's whatever. Um, this, this, I'm, I'm mentioning this in gameplay because, again, it's part of the dialogue option thing. The quality of this varies depending on the writer of the specific area, I've noticed. Because sometimes light side is good and dark side is evil. And sometimes light side is passive and dark side is aggressive. And sometimes light side is um, preserve life no matter the cost and dark side is destroy no matter the cost. It depends on the writer. And we all have our own interpretations of the Force, after all. I, Lord knows I've talked about that to death over the course of my various streams and ruminations. So, it's kind of inconsistent. I have to be honest, I just kind of ignore the light side, dark side things, and I just pick whatever I think I would pick in any given moment. And that is also what I recommend you do if you ever do play this. That being said, we ended up severely light side in my Sith Warrior playthrough, something like 17,000 light side and... Like 2,000 dark sides, so make of that what you will. So we were playing Sith Warrior. I suppose I should actually talk about the, the planetary primary and the arcs there, but honestly, most of them on the uh, Sith side are not actually that good. Balmora's alright, and Terrace had a couple of amusing points. Korriban was good, Droman Kaas was good, but both of those don't actually have planetary primaries in the strictest sense of the word. Uh, they're just the, the tutorial and intro quests, right? So, I was actually a lot less impressed than I thought I would be. For the most part, it's just advance the Empire's, you know, end here, whatever that happens to be, without a lot of interesting character or whatever. Terrace did have Thanavesh, who was amusing. It was even, I mean, I'm not even that engaged in her as a character, but I do have to admit, ignoring the fact that she has a good voice actress, there's also the fact that all the other Imperials couldn't stand her. And that's something that actually brought a smile to my face. There's a few other, like the Hoth thing of trying to keep them, keep the Republic here and waste their resources was at least kind of, okay, that's a decent idea. And the conflict between the Chiss and the Imperial, okay, that was kind of cool. But for the most part, forgettable. Not a lot of good to say about it. So let's go ahead and jump forward to talking about, and that's it, that's all I have to say about the Planetary Primaries. That's sad. <laughs> for those curious in future potential runs, we will never do those planetary primaries again, because leveling speed is so quick, we can just skip them. We will also not do the instances again, because leveling speed is so quick that we can just skip them. <laughs> Go figure. Anywho, Sith Warrior. I really like the Sith Warrior story arc. Um, you start on Korriban, and you have the deck completely stacked in your favor. Everything is done for you. You have people flown in, and you have a, a, a special assignment, and you're being coached and trained. Be, because Tremel, he really wants you to be his ace in the hole. He wants to prove that the old ways are better, because he's a racist and a bigot. So, 
that uh yeah, that that's endearing. But the interesting thing is, despite the fact that you were handed everything on a silver platter, you managed to excel in all things, which isn't always how that tends to go. You managed to push your way through things and get the attention of Darth Barris. Let me go ahead and say that Darth Barris is such an engaging and interesting character for me that I gave him two separate pluses to story. Barris is one of my favorite Sith ever across all of Star Wars. And that's a recurring trend. I'm going to pause in my recitation here to mention this. One of the things that that Tor really does right for me, it's, it's not the plot, although some of the plots for the class storylines are good, but you saw how much I was dismissive of the, you know, the, the main plots, of the, the regional plots, right, the planetary primaries. I'm not even talking about the planetary secondaries, the bonus series, because those are just... <clears throat> and, of course, the secondary quests are just whatever. But the characters... Most of my favorite presentations of the Force, the Republic, the Empire... The Jedi and the Sith are all in this game. Now that sounds like a weird statement for anybody who hasn't played the game, but I noticed when I mentioned that a lot of people who've played this game were just like, uh huh. You know, a lot of nodding heads kind of a thing. Because we see a full gamut, and Tor is unafraid to showcase that kind of gradient. We see Jedi who are vicious and violent, and we see Jedi who are dogmatic and stupid, and we see Jedi who are kind hearted and giving. We see Jedi who are long-term thinkers and pragmatic. And we see Sith who are intelligent and pragmatic. And we see Sith who are stupid and short-sighted. And I'm not going to go down the whole list. But you get the idea. We see this gradient of characters constantly. And it elevates the overall storytelling substantially throughout the course of the playthrough. This is true with the planetary primaries as well as with the actual class quests. This is the only reason I would recommend you do the Planetary Primaries. Most of the plot is not interesting, but there's some cool characters you'll meet on the way. Uh, that's for the Imperial side, obviously. I can't speak for the Republic side, because I haven't played that in five years. So, Barris. It's so hard to explain why I love Barris so much as a character. I guess I'll just jump right into this. He's got a brain... He's still Sith, he's still Darkseid, and he is evil. But he is someone who is pragmatic and intelligent and long-term thinking. In fact, his biggest shtick is that he always is thinking about his next five moves. Some people have compared him to being a chess master, and aptly so. He is the kind of planner and schemer that would make Palpatine be like, nice job. But he also isn't... I, when I say he's not stupid, I also mean he's not stupid in his methodology. He, of course, venerates dark side and evil, but he will see your fine line of thinking if you decide to be good, or light side, several times throughout the playthrough. He's like, ah, I could see the value in that. And he could be talked into it rather effortlessly, either because he agrees with you or because he doesn't care. He cares about results. He also <laughs> is very interested in his own advancement, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'd like to finish talking about Barris last. Our first arc is uh, fascinating in its own right. The first thing we do is we go through Korriban. Like I said, everything's handed to you on a silver platter. And all these other stupid Sith are like, ha, 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 we're evil, and we have the dark side. We'll look a puppy. And as they're going through, a lot of them challenge you. Because of course they do. Because that's what you do when you're on Korriban, right? For once, stupidity is being well-written. These first of all, they have no reason to think you're any stronger or weaker than you than they are. And second of all, even if you were, it's kind of the Sith 
thing to constantly contest others in order to push yourself in advance. That's how the, the Sith system works under most interpretations of the Sith system, but especially at this point in history. So a lot of the playthrough of Korriban is good stuff. In, and it's actually fun and interesting. And you can be horrifically evil, cartoonishly evil, or you can be a good person. I'll, I'll circle back to that later. Don't let me forget about it. You know, when you watch this 17 hours from now, when it finally goes live on YouTube. The... You go to Dromund Koss next, and you get to see a little bit of that. That's actually... So, Korriban is the tutorial zone. Dromund Koss is the starter zone. You know, tutorial is how you play the game. Now we're actually going to get you started and have a prologue. That's what Dromund Koss is. The, first, the game doesn't really get started until you get to Balmora, which is next. Dromund Koss kind of gets you into the feel and vibe of things. It kind of shows you how much you can scheme and manipulate. And it, it shows us an interesting insight. Because it shows us that the Sith Warrior has what I'm going to go ahead and credit Huthor for, for, for terming Letho. We, we become a bit of a Letho effect. Now, for those of you not aware of the character, don't worry about it. But the idea is we're this big, powerful, super dumb brute that everyone automatically assumes is a moron. And we're actually quite intelligent and conniving. And we more than have the ability to think our way through and around a situation. Throughout the course of the Sith Warrior arc, this is proven true. We think our way around situations and complex uh, challenges and complex circumstances that are presented to us constantly. And it's fun. And it's awesome. <laughs> we also get our first real arc. So all of the class stories have three acts to them. Some of them are better done than others. Um, Bounty Hunter Act 1 is pretty good, and then Bounty Hunter Act 2 is absolutely terrible, for example. But Sith Warrior, it goes great, kind of not good, good. So, in terms of overall quality. Act 1 is all about finding this Jedi. Now, one of the things Tor brought back into its own thing is the idea of Force specialization. You know, having a special ability that is unique amongst the Force, or being particularly good at one aspect of the Force. This is an idea I love, and would love to see more of in Star Wars. Um, so what we see is Jasa, that's her name, Jasa, uh, I don't remember her last name. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Jasa, whatever her last name is, her, uh, William? Her entire arc is about, her specialty is she can see the truth of what someone is, no matter how good of a liar they are, no matter how deep down they hide it. She can immediately determine the truth of your perspective, your opinion, or your mentality, and immediately suss out what you are. This is, of course, wonderfully subtle in its own beautiful way, because Jasa is from Alderaan. Now, I'm going to jump ahead in the story a little bit. For those of you not aware, Alderaan is um Blue Blood Planet. It's the simplest way I could put that, I think. Because everyone there is a noble. With, there's all the noble houses, and they're all bickering, they're all fighting, they have their own honorable code, and the bounty hunter gets to punch a guy. You know, it's, it's, it's good stuff, it's good stuff. It's fascinating to go through, it would be terrible to live in. But the point is, everyone there has a mask on. Everyone there is lying or deceiving or manipulating or otherwise trying to maneuver through the system in order to take out all the others around it. Jasa, born there, with force sensitivity, can immediately suss through all of that. And that makes sense, doesn't it? This, of course, then becomes doubly ironic because you could either turn her full dark side, in which case, whoop boy, yikes. <laughs> or you can go light side and she can join you and put on a mask herself. 
and become that which she despises in others for the greater good. Both of these are interesting arcs in their own way, and she's one of the most unique companions in the fact that you can change her substantially depending on your choices, but I am getting ahead of myself. The point is, you work for Barris. Barris is a spy master. He's a manipulator and a schemer. Someone who can perfectly and accurately suss out spies? That's a danger. So, the entire first act is dealing with this, finding her, and dealing with her. So first you take out some of his planted spies, you get some nice variety of responses there. Then you start sussing out, you know, okay, who, who is she, where is she from, where did she train, you know, who, who are her parents. There's some fun parts, like one of my favorite little tidbits is you can go to Alderaan and meet her parents. Now check this out for a second, I love this. Her parents were low-level, low-level's the wrong word, they were servants for the nobility class, right? You know, the whole blue blood thing. They were planning to marry her off into nobility to uplift their station as a whole, to improve their livelihood. Then the Jedi came along, took her away, and left them with nothing except for their servant status. Oh, and also you don't get to talk to your daughter anymore. Goodbye! Now, if you're paying attention, this is just bad on top of bad. You know, marrying your daughter off in order to uplift your station is not exactly great. But also, taking someone's daughter away and then giving them nothing in return is also not what I would call great. The only reason a Jedi is even there to defend them is because there is a threat to Jaysa and the effort to, and, and the Nomenkar effort to suss out the spies. Otherwise, they would have just been abandoned and who cares? She's a Jedi now, bye! I love Tor's depiction of the Jedi Order. I really do. Because there's good, there are good people in it. And then there's the rest. So. We can go to them, and obviously we're a bit of a unique person if we play a light side Sith warrior. So we say, don't worry, I'm here to free you. And they say, oh my god, no, what does this mean? Are you going to kill us? Are you going to free us of our life? Is that what you mean, Sith? And it's like, no, okay, listen, this is not. I, I, I will pay you. I will put you into a comfortable living on Droman Kos. And it takes several options for them to finally get it through their head that you're trying to offer them. A life of luxury. Now, the funny thing is, this can go one of several different ways. You can be lying to them and manipulate them, and then you have to kill the Jedi who's there to protect them. Or you could be, tell you know, aha, I'm going to send you off and everything's going to be fine, and then you send them off to be horribly tortured. You can do that. But my favorite thing to do is you, you, you successfully agree to convince them to effectively join the Empire and live a life above menial labor, you know, and, and, and being, I shouldn't say it's, I, mean, I worked as a janitor for half my life, so whatever, but my point being, uplift their station, give them a life, you know, that they can enjoy, take care of them, and then actually convince Barris to do that, because Barris can then use that to try and convince Jaysa that we're the winning team. He initially is like, I can't wait to torture them. And then you're like, well, no, 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 no. No, Barris. We're going to take care of them. And then he's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Barris is a bit of a master of doing this kind of a thing. He's smart. But one of his greatest strengths is recognizing the intelligent design of others and then taking credit for it. And acting like, oh, yeah, I totally thought of that. And that's a good idea. I definitely agree. <laughs> He's also cheating, but I, as I mentioned, we'll get to that later. So then we go and we interact with Noman Carr, who is a fantastic villain, by the way, one of the best villains of the thing. He's a Jedi, 
some of you who follow my Twitter may notice I retweeted a, a picture from Vigilant, which was fake darkness versus fake light. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, he's, uh, whew, that man, he was never a good person. The very first time we ever interact with him ever, what we find out is that he treats the troops under that are, that are there at our mercy, under his command, as disposable tools that don't matter. It's the first thing we see about him. As we go through the rest of the arc, we find out that he is a very unpleasant, cold, calculating, um, miserable, prideful, horrible human being. He's, he's, he, and just, oh my god, and all the just sickening unpleasantness kind of rises to the surface as we just beat him down at the end of the Act 1 conclusion. And then Jason shows up, and we're like, hey, check it out. It's your master over there. How's he look? <laughs> now, this scene can go two different ways. You can convert her to the dark, which is admittedly rather amusing to watch. Or you can convert her to the light in the Empire, which is... I, I can't even put into words how satisfying it is. And and how wonderful it is to, to just be like, no, no, that's cool. But I, I don't know what to trust anymore. It's okay. You can use your power on me. I'm right here. I won't, I won't resist or anything. Do you see the kindness here? Do you, do you see the niceness here? Do you see how much I'm trying to help things? Do you understand the logic of what I'm trying to do? And this this actually really got started at Tatooine. Back at Tatooine was when I realized I was going to really like Sith Warrior. Because there's an arc where you go to this pool... And you face whatever you are not. If you are dark side, you face a light side version of yourself. If you are light side, you face a dark side version of yourself. I have theorized before about the idea of force lines, ley line equivalents. Places where a large amount of force either gathers or flows through, right? This is kind of an old idea because this goes back to the Empire Strikes Back with the frickin' cave on Dagobah, but you get the idea. So... To me, what I see when I see that pool is one of those. It's a, it's a force line. And thus, there's no literal manifestation of ourself. Man, I'm saying this wrong. It's not like it's external. That's what I'm trying to say. What happens is we go there, and the force resonates so powerfully with someone so powerful in the force. And the Sith warrior is ludicrously powerful in the force, to an extent that puts them in the top tier of force users in all of Star Wars, in my opinion. Not, not at the very top but like within that upper bracket, right? So of course the Force would resonate with us. And what happens is what we see, now this is my interpretation, our doubts. What we see is what we are unsure about. And that conversation can go several ways. If you are full light, you see dark, and you can convince yourself to go dark. Or you could stand by your, your convictions and insist on remaining light, in which case you defeat your own doubts, or your doubts defeat you. And the same is true in reverse. If you are full dark side, you can, can be convinced to go light, or you can persist in dark. It's a wonderful scene. Very, very well written. Very well presented. I'm, I'm sorry for gushing, but I absolutely love Sith Warrior. I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think uh, about the, the force pool and exactly what's happening there. But either way, this then leads us to the big conclusion, where we can convince her. And, God, chat was just going nuts on this scene. I love this scene, because I want to share a story with you. Now, I've been 
watching and digesting and and it's a terrible word dissecting fiction since i was a child uh, since i was very very young and something i enjoy doing it's something i do regardless of the show and my job but one of the things i've done for years and i've acknowledged this uh, more recently i didn't use it in my very oldest videos i was an idiot and didn't acknowledge this um, i tend to headcanon uh, more specifically i tend to cherry pick and do little rewrites you know what I mean by that. I'm sure you do. If you're a fan of Star Wars, I guarantee you, you do that. Because we've had to cherry pick, especially during the EU. You can't take all the EU into one bundle and consider it all canon. It just doesn't fit that way, right? There's actually contradicting stuff, just like Star Trek. So, we all do that to some extent or another. But it is exceptionally rare. Because what I tend to do is I tend to rewrite things just a little bit in my head to make them the way that I want, the way I want the story to go, if I were writing it kind of a deal, right? It is exceptionally rare that the story then does that, that we then reach a point where it's like, and then that's actually a thing. It's no longer headcanon. This is exactly what happened with Sith Warrior to me. I was headcanoning the whole time that I was a good Sith, but I was born on, on the wrong side of the line, and I was caught into the Korriban thing and brought before Trammel, and it's like, okay, crap, now what do I do? But it's okay, because I've never thought that the dark side is evil, and Tor is probably one of the biggest works where the dark side is not evil and the light side is not good. So, it was relatively easy to headcanon the idea that I was using the dark side as a mask, and in order to do good from within the Empire, to try and take over and reform the Empire from within. Then the end of Act 1 hit, and my character flat out says that to Jason, and I'm just like... Yes, I knew it! You know, there's, there's this weird moment. I don't know how to explain it elsewise. I'm curious if you've ever had something like that happen in fiction where you were you were headcanoning or, or wanting something and then it actually happens. It's like, yes! Really rare for me. What about you guys? Anyways. This then moves us forward a little bit. Um, and I, I, I want to talk about Barris again really quick here. I mentioned Barris is intelligent. So there's two things he does in Act 1 and in Act 2 I want to talk about, both of which really help to highlight the mentality of Barris. In Act 1, it's one of the first things he does. Uh, you approach him, and you talk to him, and he's like, okay, go kill Tremel. This is actually brilliant in its own way, because Barris has just ensured a no-matter-what-he-wins. He sends you back, so if you refuse, then you're either going to be hunted down or killed or whatever. You're not an issue anymore, and Tremel's power is broken because his, his vaunted uh, apprentice just bailed. If you go back to Tremel and fight Tremel and die, then Tremel has just been forced to kill his own apprentice, which is his own ticket into pushing his agenda, which also means Tremel power base, Tremel's power base has just been broken. If you go back and kill Tremel, then you have proven your worth and that you are superior to Tremel, and now Barris has a loyal ally that he just spared the politics and rigmarole of all that in exchange for removing his enemy from the board. It really is like a win-win-win scenario for Barris. It's brilliant in the way it's presented. But the second thing I want to mention is in Act 2. Here there's this guy. His name is Vengeon. Now, all of the classes to some extent or another have a let me actually rewind for a second. Uh, five years prior to... No, it's longer than that, isn't it? 
I don't remember. I didn't write it down. Several years prior to Tor's beginning, there was a great war between the Sith Empire and the Galactic Republic. That war was heavily slanted towards the Imperial side because they had the advantage of surprise. The Republic wasn't even aware of their existence, never mind the fact that there was going to be this massive conflict. The Republic started on the back foot. The Empire then led forward until they got to the point of the sacking of Coruscant and forced the Republic to the peace treaty table. Now, a lot of the Imperials opposed this, but the Emperor himself pushed for this because of Revan. And so, as a consequence, the, the war halted. Now, the significance of that is the only reason the Empire, with all its bickering and infighting and stupidity, managed the success it did was because they were fighting a foe that wasn't ready for them and wasn't ready, period. After that, their advantages vanish. Thus, over the years since then, the Republic has managed to bolster itself to the point where it can actually hold its own. And the Empire, well, they've just continued to self-destruct a little bit, because that's kind of the way the Sith Empire works. Thus, and this is actually kind of smart on behalf of the writers, what started off like this goes to this and evens out. Now, there's a peace treaty, the Treaty of Coruscant, and that peace treaty means they're in a state of Cold War, proxy battles and dodging around the legality of actually fighting each other. The end of Act 2, that peace treaty is broken and both sides go back to war, which then serves as the backdrop to Act 3. Sith Warrior has the most to do with the war being redeclared, because Sith Warrior runs around and does a lot of jobs, and most of those jobs are for Barriss and for Vengeon, specifically to provoke war to attack and push Republic efforts in an overt and demonstrable way to provoke them into conflict. That's, uh, that's an interesting approach, because what Barris does here is he gets the war going again, which Barris wants, especially as a spymaster. He gets the Dark Council angry at Vengeance, because the Dark Council doesn't want war. But because Vengeon has now pushed for this, and Vengeon's the one who gets all the credit, because he's the one, he's the master of Barris, Vengeon's the one who is now in deep uh, uh, doo-doo, let's just call it what it is, with the Dark Council. This also leaves Barris in perfect position to have what is effectively a Cassus Belly, to have Vengeon assassinated and take his slot. Barris moves up. Barris has the gratefulness of the council and can move on with his plans while still ensuring that what he wants, which is the war, also happens. This is Barris in a nutshell right here. Act 2, I do have to say, though, meanders quite a bit. There's... <sighs> Plan Zero is just kind of... And, like I said, it, it drops substantially in quality. There's, there's a few cool moments, but for the most part, it's just kind of like, all right, whatever, whatever, let's go. It's also when we're introduced to Drog. Drog's not as bad as I remembered. I still gave him a negative to story, but he's nowhere near as bad as I remembered, where you know, he's not as bad as Ranjit, for example. Uh, Drog is the Kai Lang of this story. He comes out of basically nowhere and posits himself to be your equal and your nemesis. He's also the hardest fights in the game, as far as Sith Warrior goes. The initial fight against him on, I think, Belsavis, I want to say? And the final fight with him against, against him on Corellia, those fights suck. He has a lot of stats, he hits very hard. He is absolutely insane to fight solo, and he is still irritating to fight with a friend. Uh, yeah, those fights suck. <laughs> 
But the problem is, just like Kai Lang, he's actually pathetic, and he's only really powerful because he cheats, and you have to fight three versions of him back-to-back without any ability to pause or heal in between, and that sucks. So, but it's okay, because he's dead. <clears throat> so we finish Act 2. Uh, Drog betrays us. Oh no, we're betrayed. Shock. This is the beginning of Act 3. Uh, we get in good with the Emperor. I'll talk about that in a second. But I like the structure of Act 3, because Act 3 is structured as a revenge story, but it's not. I mean, oh yeah, sure, we want to go and defeat Barris, but what are we doing in Act 3? We gain the uh, allies and allegiance of the Voss. We manage to ingratiate ourselves to an additional moth and multiple Sith Lords, including a Darth who's on the Council. Um, we ingratiate ourselves with the Emperor's Hand and become the Emperor's Wrath and all the protections and powers that that implies. You know, it, the Emperor's Wrath doesn't have an official political position. We're not in charge of the Empire politically. But we can kind of do whatever we want to. It, it is the Vader position, let's just call it what it is, because Sith Warrior in many ways was inspired by Darth Vader. So what that means is we can basically walk up to someone and say, do this, and they kind of have to do it. And no one can really stop us. We don't really have the ability to rule the Empire. We are just the supreme executor. Because we act with the authority, implied, of course, authority of the Sith Emperor, Vitiae, which I want to talk about that too, but I'll get to that in a minute. So then we go through Hoth, Belsavis, and Corellia. This is when the game starts to suck, in my opinion. Voss is cool. I like Voss's storyline. I love the Voss culture. I mean, they're horrible people. They are um, ignorant, blind, racist bigots. But they're still a fascinating culture. and There's a lot of really cool stuff with them. It's, it's, it's like the, the dwarves in Dragon Age. You know, I'd never want to live there, but it's, it's from a distant perspective of analyzing fiction and you know, reading or playing a game. That's awesome, right? Fascinating stuff. I, I love that their visions, they have these visions which are 100% accurate. That, and that's important. They are demonstrably true. The visions of the Force they have. Uh, through the Force, excuse me. And the Voss are also yet another example of the Force thing in Tor. I mentioned how the Force, you know, dark side is not necessarily evil, light side is not necessarily good. There's also the idea that you don't have to go dark side or light side to draw on the Force. This is something the EU played with here and there. Tor goes full tilt with this. The Voss just kind of use the Force. They use it in two ways. One's the visions, which are 100% accurate. And the other is healing. But they can only heal by transferring. It's kind of a zero-sum game. If you're at 100 health and they're at 50, you can make it so you're both at 50 health. But that's it. You can't actually just straight heal someone. You can see how both of these are huge advantages, right? And kind of slots them into a unique position to being a backwards planet, which doesn't even have space travel, yet nevertheless is very interesting. Both the Republic and the Galactic Empire, or excuse me, the Sith Empire, especially since they're back at war, want them as galactic allies. That's what I was trying to say. I also love how, so I mentioned the visions are 100% accurate, but that's for the person who saw the vision. They might not understand what they saw. They might saw, saw, see things that they don't see. Saw? They might vi have things in a vision that they don't know what they are. They don't have words for them. If I had a vision right now of, I, I, okay, this is actually a terrible joke. Um, if three-year-old me had a vision that was 100% just one-to-one -one shot of myself now, you know, in uh, do, playing Tor, right? 
my three-year-old self wouldn't really be able to understand what was going on. I, I would see the total truth, but I don't really have the words or the understanding for the comprehension, right? This is the catch. There's another catch. Uh, these visions can be described to someone whose job it is then to interpret. This is how politics gets involved. Because the people whose job it is to interpret visions, well, they're going to interpret it in a way that, that suits their agenda or the agenda that they have been bribed to push. And this can go some very funny ways. One of my favorites is there's a vision that's mentioned where the three, which is the leading council of the Voss, die. And that's the vision. The three are going to die. So he says, okay. So he then uses, uh, whoever this is, they use their power and influence to elevate a child, a very young child, to being a member of the three. And the, the most elder and venerated member of the three steps down. The three then die. The elder venerated person, who is still alive, then returns to help lead the Voss in the absence of the three. Fun stuff like that. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot about them, but I, I, I find the Voss absolutely fascinating. The relevance to the Sith warrior is the Emperor, Vichier, also known as Moron, actually found several things fascinating about these people, just like I did. A lot of tools, a lot of usage. Huh, okay, let's go down there. Catches, for various circumstances I don't feel like going into, he ends up getting trapped there. Because the Emperor hasn't been in his, his original body in a very long time at this point. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's actually the centuries range right now, but don't quote me on that. At this point, he's 1,500 years old, by the way. I'm mentioning that. <clears throat> so, Vichier, his original body, so he body hops, right? Anytime he shows, he, you see the Emperor, he's actually in someone else's body. So he body hops into a Voss, and the Voss ends up getting trapped there, and he can't leave that body. Hence, the Emperor's now trapped. Good job, Barris. We're set to free him. Eh, not as good of a job on our part. So we end up freeing the Sith Emperor, and this leads directly into the Jedi Knight arc, actually, where we go, where as the Jedi Knight, we go after one of the body duplicates of the Emperor. <sighs> And as we're, as we're progressing through this, bit by bit, things just keep getting worse and worse and worse for Barris. Because we just keep winning. Because of course we do. Hear me out for a second. One of the things Tor does very well is it gives a good explanation, at least on the Imperial side, for why the PC succeeds. In many cases, we actually lose as the PC. We lose to Thanaton. We lose to, uh, I can't remember his name, Hunter. We lose to Hunter. We are constantly being harangued by Jackass as the bounty hunters. And we lose to Drog as the Sith Warrior and Barris. The game is not afraid to show that we are not just always going to win just because we're the PC. And the game tries to give us a lore explanation for why we do succeed in the end. The bounty hunter has the skill and the know-how and is, is, is a very good person who has been very... They have a very adept mind, despite their overall thuggish behavior. The Sith Inquisitor is an intellectual. I don't know why I said that word so weird. I'm kind of tired, forgive me. It's been a long day. An intellectual. The Sith Inquisitor is someone who knows the value of allies, of knowledge, of how to apply their power. The agent, oh, I don't even have to say that one, but the agent is incredibly smart and incredibly ahead of their, their enemies in almost every step of the way. They are so good at their job that they know when to not fight. The Sith Warrior is the interesting one here. 
I mentioned that I consider the Sith Warrior to be in that upper tier of overall power. That's because the Sith Warrior shtick is that they are just that freaking strong. Again, this continues the Vader parallel. You know, Anakin, amazing amount of power of the Force. Yeah, that's the Sith Warrior. We are just that good in terms of raw power. All the other main characters, they have something that enables them to win. The Sith Warrior wins completely on their own. Just on, on, onto the strength of their own personal power. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is what, one of the reasons why Barris decided to back us and keep us as an apprentice. This is also why him turning against us was one of the stupider things he could have done. Because we were loyal, at least at that point in time, and he decided to chop us off because he was making his big power play for becoming the Emperor's voice and effectively running the Empire. That was his long-term goal. But at the same time, having gone back through with analysis mode on, I can't help but notice that he was pretty smart in how he betrayed us. He arranged an actual attack on an actual Imperial spot by an actual Republic force that actually had consequences and actually had the potential to destroy us. And then he ensured that the bombs that were placed there were under the control of his minion, Drog, so that we could be destroyed by the explosion and the destruction of the cave. Truth be told, if not for the fact that Drog bothered to sit and gloat for a bit, and the fact that we are just that powerful, that should have succeeded. But this then leads me to what I said earlier. Of course we're winning. Of course we're ripping apart Barriss' power base. We're the Sith Warrior. We are a wrecking ball that just absolutely tears through anything. First we kill his sister over on Belsavis, and then we start absolutely tearing through his, his uh, support base on Corellia. We also have the Quinn incident. Quick aside, you notice I haven't said anything about some of the companions. This is when I'm going to talk about that. Vet is awesome. I actually like Vet better than Mission. Make of that what you will. Although Vet didn't like me that much because I made her kill the hut because there was no option for me to kill the hut. Which brings me to my point. While the companions are decent in the Sith Warrior thing, you know, I, I liked Quinn relatively better than I thought I would. I liked Pierce. You know, I like Jaysa up until her story stops. And I like Vet. The companions, in my opinion, are incredibly badly handled in Tor. Now, I know this is an MMO, and I know they have to keep to a formula, but just because this is an MMO does not mean they have to keep to a formula. I'm going to use Dragon Age Origins as an example. How many companions can you never recruit in Dragon Age Origins? How many of them can you directly kill, either by a course of action or whatever? How many of them leave your party because of course of action or because you ask them to? This is, in my opinion, one of the strengths of Dragon Age Origins, because how you play informs your companion base. It is possible to keep everyone, and to make everyone like you, and to stay cool with everyone. It's possible to lose everyone, except for like two, and it's possible for a huge amount of permutation in between. Now maybe that's expecting too much from an MMO, and that's fair. But I think they could go a few steps further than what they do. There are some companions that shouldn't even be companions, or you should have the option to not recruit them. Brundark, Brunmark, comes to mind immediately. Now, if you even remember who that is, props. I bothered this playthrough to do all of his little dialogue things and see his little story arc, just to make sure that I could see, no, really, he is just that boring, vanilla, plain dull. If you replace every line of dialogue he says with, I'm evil, no information is lost. I know that having a token evil party mate's kind of a thing, especially in Bioware games, but what the hell. 
Now, Jaysa, they do that properly, because Jaysa has a great story arc up to her joining the crew, and then you, she can be very evil, very good. And then she has a really cool story arc after that, with some really cool-sounding ideas. Ashara has this, too, for the Inquisitor. There's some cool ideas, and I'd love to see it. And what happens is it fades to black, and then it comes back. Oh, Master, my battle, it was epic and incredible, and I, I'd love to tell you about it, but honestly, I just, I'd rather keep the details to myself, if that's okay. Little lacking. A little lacking. Pierce, he actually sets up this, the, the, the Republic trooper story arc by going after, uh, General, whatever his name is, Torkin or Torben or something like that, and, uh, go, and taking the Bastion, which forms the final story arc for trooper, for God's sakes. That's all off camera. Fade to black. And I'm back. I'm back, Commander. But then I want to, but I really want to talk about here is Quinn. Actually, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to mention Vet. Because, there's a pattern. The first companion, except for Jedi Knight, uh, of everyone, of all eight classes, they get a story arc. They get a class quest that you can actually go and do. And it's usually pretty good. There's usually some cool stuff there. Vets was good. You know, finding her sister, finding their mother, and finding out the fate of them, and restoring Twi'lek artifacts. It, there's good stuff there. I liked it. That got a positive, absolutely. Um, but that's it. They're the only ones who get an actual story arc. Quinn came close, though. Now, by memory, I don't like Quinn. I didn't, I suppose I should have but, but this time through, I actually liked Quinn a lot more than I thought I would. Now, he, I, obviously, he stopped flirting with me pretty early on, which is good, because uh, I was playing a female Sith warrior. Uh, which you guys voted for, by the way. If you're wondering why I played female, I was ambivalent. I could flip a coin. But Quinn is interesting because he has this massive stick just lodged right up there. But other than that, he's an interesting character. His life was saved, and his career is owed to Barris. That's why he's so loyal to him. But other than that, he is more of an ideal Imperial military. He is interested in results, efficiency, and doing things properly. He doesn't have an excess of cruelty or malice. He is not in it for personal promotion. He is not selfish or corrupt. He is a model officer. And his story arc is him going up against a moth who has literally gone insane. He has dementia. But that moth is still in power and still giving orders. And that is exactly as horrible as it sounds. Thus, Quinn is put up against his direct opposite, someone who is incredibly incompetent and very selfish and only interested in his own personal aggrandizement. Now, Quinn's arc is cool in its own right. Quinn does betray us. Back Way back in the day, we actually had the option to kill Quinn for that betrayal. This is the other reason I remember not liking him, because I'm not fond of betrayal. That option has been removed from the game. Because people complained. Now, allow me to go ahead and professionally say that it actually makes no damn sense to me. See, back in the day, companions were set in what they can do. And Quinn, he was your healer. So he was the one a lot of people used. Uh, the catch here is, of course, if you kill him, then you lose your healer companion. But um, it's your choice that you kill him. <laughs> if you care that much about having a healer, then let him live, dude. Like it's not the the game did not force you to kill him any, any, any more than it forced you to let him live. Now the game forces you to let him live. That decision has been removed. Oh, by the way, companions don't work that way anymore. Any companion, any companion can be a tank, healer, or DPS. It's a freaking toggle. Done. You could switch in the middle of a dungeon. So that complaint is no longer valid at all. 
and killing Quinn should probably be on the table. It's not, of course. But this leads to why I think Quinn is interesting and why he was pushed up a little bit for me. Because Quinn is also a nice foil to Barris. Barris aspire, presents himself like he is the Sith equivalent of Quinn, but he's not. Barris is emotional and has very little self-control and doesn't... He is interested only in himself. Some, I've said this many times. Some people seek power because they want to use power. They want to rule. They want to lead. Some people seek power because they want the benefits of power. They want fancy things and nice people of whatever gender they're interested in and nice expensive stuff or whatever. That's Barris. He's in it for himself. He wants to be on top of the heap and he wants to languish and... Languish is the wrong word. Uh, uh, the opposite of languish in luxury. He wants to just lap up the luxury. This is very, very well made clear by the end of the Act 3 arc as his own mask starts to lower, even made more obvious when during the fight with him his mask finally comes off for the first and only time in the entire story arc. Because Barris is a man of masks, and masks and disguising your true nature is the overall theme of the Sith Warrior class arc. Barris, as he is revealed, is a very smart, pragmatic Sith, but he is still very much a Sith. Um, he's the kind of person who probably should not be in power. He is the kind of person who absolutely sees absolutely nothing wrong with killing us because we might be a problem later on and he doesn't want to be connected to us. He sees absolutely no problem in throwing Quinn to the wolves because he thinks Quinn, who is a valuable and loyal officer, is no more useful than whatever his immediate use can be. The selfishness that Barris displays is astonishing, really. And in the end, on Corellia, we find out he's been cheating. Because he actually has this woman, the Entity is what she's called, that he has been tapping to use her special ability, which, you remember I mentioned four specializations? Her special force thing is visions, kind of like the Voss. She can see things, those things come true. And Barris has been using that to cheat for years. Quick aside, the Entity is not Kreia. I'm just going to say that. Now you're probably thinking, well, hang on a second, I heard it was Kreia. Let me clarify, because I decided to look into this. The Entity... Uh, aside from having an entry about, you know, smashing the Jedi hundreds of years ago. Also, uh, someone reached out to Drew Karpashen and said, hey, is this, is this Kreia? And Drew said, well, I didn't write this, but I think she's supposed to be Kreia. That's it. That's the only indicator that she's actually Kreia. And she's never come up since. And I, no, I, I don't buy it. What I think is far more likely, my interpretation, and as always, I'm curious of yours, my interpretation is that she is someone who Vichier found, and he was like, ooh, force visions, I could use those. And he enslaved her and used her and tossed her away and turned her into a living artifact that other Sith could use in order to vision. Barris found her, Barris used her, the end. That's what I think. What do you think? So Barris has been cheating for years. And as we see, as we break him down, as we defeat Drog, as we silence the Entity, Barris kind of starts to do this as he just spirals down the drain. And you can hear great voice acting, by the way. You can hear, because he becomes more and more desperate. He goes to the Dark Council. This is actually just before the Sith Inquisitor, because you can tell, because Thanaton's still on the Council. 
He goes to the Dark Council and he insists that they deal with this. That the, the Emperor's voice demands that we kill, that they kill me. And I'm like, okay. It's Mar, who's awesome, by the way, who steps up and says, no, I think you two should fight. We'll figure it out from that one. And Barris just starts falling apart and you can just wonderfully mock him and berate him. And I don't even mean like in an insulting, like you're dumb kind of way. No, you have some wonderful choice insults for him as his power is completely crumbling around him and all that he's done is falling to naught because he decided to betray us. Did I mention he got a vision that we would be his downfall? That's why he betrayed us. With Barris's fall, we are confirmed as the Emperor's Wrath. I already kind of mentioned that. And that's the end of Sith Warrior. I have to admit, with friends, with cheats, this was fun. Like, I liked this a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, granted, Sith Warrior is what I consider to be one of the, the best stories in Tor, but this has fully codified in my mind the idea that MMO reviews are a thing we can do on this show, and that, you know, more Tor runs are a thing we can do. A little bit more part and parcel, you know, individual classes being a run, or individual expansions being a run, rather than, let's tackle the whole thing, oh god, kill me, which is what we tried to do last time. Stupid lore. But either way... I enjoyed this game, and I would love to hear any of your guys' thoughts on either the gameplay or the story or the Sith Warrior, anything you'd like to share, because as ever, I love hearing from you guys. Thank you very much for your time and attention. I'll see you next time.